What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. That was Mozart. That's F. Marie Abraham as Antonio Salieri, the self-proclaimed patron saint of mediocrities, at least according to 1984's Amadeus. And here I thought I was the patron saint of mediocrities. (laughs) Wasn't going to say anything, Adam. (laughs) This week, we've got our top five Mozart movie moments, along with an 8 from 84 review of Milos Forman's best picture winning film. That and more. Mediocrities everywhere. I absolve you. Ahead on Film Spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Later in the show, we will get to that 8 from 84 discussion of Amadeus. It's a pretty strange situation with that film. We've had this a few times with some of our 8 from 84 choices. Are we watching the theatrical cut? Is there a new director's cut or an extended edition? This is a movie that won the Best Picture Oscar in 1985. And here we are 35 years later, Josh. You can't get the theatrical version. You can't rent it anywhere. If you're lucky, I think you got yours at the library. Is that correct? Yeah, you basically, you can't watch it online, the theatrical That's right. release, right? But if you can find a DVD and yeah, you know, the uh, interlibrary loan came through again for me. That's pretty much the only way you can get it right now. Are you suggesting people go to their local blockbuster, Josh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not many options. I do have a DVD copy of that theatrical version. And I remember thinking, well, I love this film. I'm going to buy the Blu-ray for this review only to find that I couldn't unless I wanted that director's cut that came out in 2002. And by all accounts, it doesn't necessarily make the movie better. Our friend Ryan Johnson, the director on Twitter, even responded directly to our producer, Sam, saying, yeah, I'm not happy about it either. We're definitely not alone on this. We will get to that Amadeus conversation here in just a bit. But first, Mozart's music has been part of cinema for long before Amadeus, which made this week's top five list a somewhat impossible task, Adam. Would you say this was harder than our Morricone scores list we did a few weeks ago? Maybe just from a practical standpoint, obviously Morricone had a ton of options, including many that we unfortunately still need to see. But This was daunting because you start to look at the list of films where Mozart has been utilized, and it was a little overwhelming at first, trying Mm -hmm. trying to narrow it down to just five. And then you start to think about, as we do with our list, always wanting a little bit of variety. And I noticed at one point that I was headed for three piano concertos in a row, and I want everyone to get the full sense of Mozart's work and how filmmakers have employed his music over the years. So then you start shifting things around a little bit. How did it go for you? 
Yeah, I think it it was definitely daunting, but also really enjoyable to be able to just kind of soak in this music as we did with the Morricone scores. Mm -hmm. Um, In both instances, I was able to set aside some time and just have this sort of music wash over me. And my relationship with classical music in general, uh, you know, I listen to a fair amount just because uh, my older daughter, she plays cello and piano. So she's been filling our house with it for years now, but I've never really invested in it to the point that, you know, I could identify a piece upon hearing it. I am not mm-hmm. a student of classical music. Let me just say that. Neither so, am I. So listeners were really helpful here on social media in helping to direct me maybe where to go, narrow things down, and also sparking my memory, honestly, to sequences in film where mm-hmm. Mozart was used and was really key to a favorite movie moment of mine. So yeah, a couple came to mind right away, but others were suggested by listeners and it was kind of a light bulb like, yes, I can I immediately remember what they're talking about and the music was key there. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense and we should note a couple of options that we had to discard early on because they're in the film spotting pantheon, the Jupiter Symphony appears in Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Symphony number 34 is used in Vertigo. So those two were out, and I'm sure there were probably some other options, Josh, that maybe didn't come to mind that are in movies that are in the film Spotting Pantheon, but I thought those two were definitely worth mentioning off the top. Well, and here's where I guess I'm going to have to confess because (laughs) I was wondering if I should bring this up, but I realized it too late in the game. We're recording um, this in the morning, which we usually don't do, and just before we got on, Adam, I realized my number five, a Pantheon film. A late-added no Pantheon film. The Tree of Life. Yes. I, I, yes, indeed. I don't okay. know how I missed that, so I deeply apologize. I will pay the Pantheon penalty, whatever that might be. Maybe it's watching Hubie Halloween twice in a row. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know Maybe. what I have to do, but I apologize. Well, this is good. I've got one on you. Okay. I apologize. I'm still going to stick with it here at number five. Um, I knew I was going to go with Malik, of course, because he employs classical music throughout his filmography, and I think most often he does that for its transcendent quality and it matches the transcendent quality of his filmmaking. So that that's usually the perfect fit. What I like about his use of Mozart in the tree of life, however, is this moment I'm going to talk about undercuts that sensibility, that transcendent sensibility, or at least I could say undercuts one of the characters. Um, We have Brad Pitt's father in the film here, a talented musician, Mr. O'Brien, but he also uses music, I think, as a way to puff up his own social status or his sense of social status. He also uses it as a weapon against his three boys. He lectures them about it. He puts it often in opposition to their unruly behavior when he plays it in the home. Sometimes he's playing a record. um, Sometimes he's playing it on his own piano. So it's really a way for him to establish his taste, his cultural superiority, and his authority over all of them. So there's this one moment where Mr. O'Brien sits down to play part of the second movement of Mozart's Piano Sonata Number 16. And we hear this while the camera is floating through their house, as it often does in the movie. Um, But we notice what we're seeing are not these necessarily transcendent moments, but moments of domestic tension, mundane Mm -hmm. moments, um, where you can see that there's this air among the family members in the gestures and in the glances. And so here, the loveliness of the music is almost ironic. Mr. O'Brien, in a way, is honoring it, right, with, with the 
accomplished way he's trying to play uh, or the honor he's trying to give it in his plane, but he's also dishonoring it in the way he's using it to hold his family in his grip. It was interesting. I, I found a book by James Wersbicki. It's called Terrence Malick, Sonic Style. And he had this fascinating tidbit about this piece of music in the movie. He wrote the on-screen performance of the second movement of Mozart's Sonata Number no. 16 in C major on a slightly out-of-tune spinet sounds, quote, realistic. The music comes from a far-from-perfect recording made especially for the film by Malick's childhood friend, Jim Lynch. So you can see that undercutting was intentional from the very start there. It's just another way the music itself, or at least the performing of it, is questioning and undermining Mr. O'Brien in this scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely ironic because you've got this tranquility of the music juxtaposed against the conflict of this house. And specifically, you're right, Mr. O'Brien's movements and the camera movements. Malik may come up again, and this is a great compare-contrast to how Malik can use Mozart in a completely different way or to completely different effect. We'll get to that here with my number four in a moment. My number five is not as heady material, Josh, as The Tree of Life. And you mentioned listeners being particularly helpful in this endeavor. We're going to hear from a couple of them with this pick. And it's noteworthy for me, this choice, because it's probably the first time I heard Mozart on screen. Now, at this age, I would have been about eight years old when I saw this film and watched it repeatedly. I wouldn't have known that it was Mozart. I wouldn't have been able to place it, but it has always lingered with me. And Jan McDaniel, a listener who is the professor of vocal coaching at the Bass School of Music in Oklahoma City, has a story about this choice. I had just returned to the U.S. from a few years of conducting in a German opera house. My first job back in the U.S. was conducting three stage works in a summer repertory opera theater, one of which was Mozart's Cosi von Tutti, which was really giving the local non-union orchestra fits. All three works rehearsed at the same time, and I was run ragged after a couple of weeks of this process. And the festival was in Texas during the summer, so it was over 100 degrees during the day. One weekday, I announced to everyone I needed a break, and I left everything in the hands of assistants and fled to the local mall's multiplex. I decided that Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd would provide the perfect escape. The TV trailers promised a fast-paced, hilarious romp, and that it was. What I was not prepared for, however, is that right away, the familiar opening of the Figaro Overture kicked off. realize that there was no escaping Mozart this summer. So no matter what other Mozart moments I've assembled over the years in the hundreds of films I've seen, this one will always be mine. And as it turns out, I'm currently in rehearsal for a masked, socially distanced production of, what else, Mozart's Cozy Fawn 2D. So I couldn't resist sharing this story with you when I saw your current top five. We're glad you did. Jan, best of luck with that production. Of course, the movie we are talking about is... Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. And I mentioned probably my first exposure to Mozart on screen. Another reason I wanted to include it here, Josh, is I think we typically associate classical music being used in very serious ways. That certainly applies to The Tree of Life and all the rest of my picks. 
we don't think about how effectively it can be used in comedies. And I'm sure you saw some of these when you were doing your research, but Cozy Fontuti appears in Moonrise Kingdom, and The Truman Show uses a piano sonata and a horn concerto. When Harry Met Sally uses Mozart's string quintet in E-flat major, Groundhog Day another piano sonata, but Trading Places of all those, honestly, is the one that I've got the most nostalgic tie to. And that opening really does establish everything about this movie so perfectly. We're going to let one more listener do the honors here and explain why. Good day, good day. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Maidstone in England. I'm so glad that you're looking at Amadeus and also picking top Mozart moments. And I wanted to pick the opening of John Landis's Trading Places, which uses uh, Mozart's overture to the marriage of Figaro to establish Philadelphia as a city and the home of that smug, preening jerk, Louis Winthrop III, played by Dan Aykroyd. The music is exciting and exhilarating and classy, and they're juxtaposing shots of landmarks in Philadelphia, but also the inner city and cops on the beat, with shots of Coleman the butler, played by the, the supreme to home Elliot, as he lays out the crisp shirts and ties for his master. And it's just lovely. The music is, is, is regal and exciting, and it's a wonderful uh, place setter for the film to come. Thank you very much, and uh, I enjoy listening to the show. Thank you. So as Henrik said, establishing Philadelphia as the setting for this movie, establishing Louis Winthrop III's home and his environment and juxtaposing the classiness and the refinement of the upper class and their routines with the inner city and the working class and their routines. And also, Josh, as we know from Amadeus and rewatching it, if we didn't know it before, if we weren't overly familiar with The Marriage of Figaro, that idea, that concept meshing the, the high class with the lower class is exactly what that opera ultimately mm-hmm. is really about. And there are some really clever cuts that we see during this sequence too, like a man in a suit in an overcoat opening a jewelry shop. But it's not the kind of location where Lewis or the Dukes would shop, certainly. And he's sliding the metal security gate open. And then we cut to Denholm Elliott, who's Lewis's butler, in his tailored suit, opening the door to Lewis's fancy home and picking up the newspaper. And then a little bit later, men holding their hands over a flame in a garbage can, cut to Elliot's hands open, holding an orange as he's using a juice squeezer, right, preparing his breakfast. I think there's some really nice match cuts there. And you just know watching it that the men and the people in line for the bus and waiting at some city office, slow-moving city bureaucracy, they're having a very different morning than the one Lewis is having with his shoes polished and set out for him and the fresh croissants. And it does establish everything we need to know about Lewis's world and ultimately Billy Ray Valentine's world, Eddie Murphy's character, before we even meet him. And it establishes the whole experiment of the movie, which I guess I'm going to get a little bit serious here, Josh, is the experiment of America beginning in Philadelphia. Is it one's birth and heredity that defines who 
you are or is it your environment? Can you truly become whoever you want to be using the Duke's own words, given the right surroundings and encouragement? And then, of course, who holds the strings to providing those surroundings and encouragement? It's all too often people just like the Dukes who hold those cards and make all of those decisions. And The Marriage of Figaro, too, one of Mozart's most famous pieces of music, even if we don't know it by name, a lot of us do recognize it, similar to maybe Father Vogler in Amadeus, who goes, ah, yes, I know that one. And you can, <laughs> you can hum along with the tune, as I said, even if you aren't really sure where it comes from. So, yeah, Trading Places, formative Eddie Murphy movie from the 80s for me, too. And probably one of those I had just seen at the neighbor's house, VHS, something like that, maybe on cable. I'm going to have to someday make a um, a film festival of the movies I saw at the neighbor's house in the 80s, because yeah. whenever you bring those up, that's kind of my response. And it, it's that would be fun to revisit those all in a pack. That's a top five list. That's a future <laughs> list, Josh. There you go. All right. Number four. Well, I've had Alien on my mind. Because I got my hands on an advanced copy of a book written by a film spotting listener, Sarah Welch Larson, here in Chicago. And her book's called Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. Really good so far. Can't wait for it to come out. And reading it, you know, had me thinking about the original Alien's use of Mozart's Ina Kleine Nacht music. Now, another listener, Dylan O'Connell, was on the same wavelength as me because he suggested this pick on my Larson on Film Facebook page. Here's what he said. It's minor, but I have to plug the diegetic use of Ina Kleine Nacht music in my beloved Alien. It's the track Dallas is listening to as he's lounging in the shuttle when he's interrupted by Ash's ominous call. I think you should have a look at Kane. It's the final moment of calm before the storm. Delicate strings, pretensions of high culture, so wonderfully oblivious to the primal terror that is already roaming the ship. A perfect little flourish, not every Mozart track has to dominate the scene. So I love that last point Dylan makes there because Mozart is so often used as an exclamation point. You know, the the thundering being of the scene is embodied by the music so often. And I think in our picks so far, we've kind of gone in little different directions. Um, And this is definitely the case here where what the music is setting the stage for we know, especially once we've seen the film a single time and we're revisiting it, that -hmm. it's completely at odds with what we're about to get. So here it's almost maybe an afterthought, um, but the tonal contrast it does provide is a really effective one. So I'm going with Alien at number four. Yeah, Alien is one. If I didn't know for sure you were going to use it, Josh, it was absolutely going to make my list. And you do have two tonal contrasts here so far in your first two choices where the music is providing that ironic kind of counterpoint to either what we're seeing play out on screen or what we know is eventually going to play out on screen or what we feel maybe is going to play out if you're watching Alien for the first time. And my number four is definitely going to go in a different direction. As I hinted, it is a Terrence Malick choice. And your scene from The Tree of Life, Josh, was all about the music against those chaotic, violent actions of Mr. O'Brien and what we see taking place in that house. And the camera matches that in terms of being chaotic and violent and swift in its movements. This scene is the complete antithesis. This is Terrence Malick in nature, piano concerto number 23 in A major from The New World. Colin Farrell and Kiryanka Kilcher, the stars of this scene. And this is the scene 
of the movie The New World. All of the conflict of the movie revolves around the irreconcilability of their love, of the Englishman's way of life and the Native American's way of life, this uneasy cohabitation. And if we don't understand in our hearts what John Smith is feeling and experiencing in these moments, then the whole movie fails. And then how do you pick the exact right piece of music that suggests and expresses all of that? Something that's that's powerful and stirring, but isn't ostentatious, isn't too bold, that doesn't pull our attention away from the intimacy of what we're seeing on screen. And you hear the piano here, the touch of it is so light and airy and beautiful. It, it evokes total tranquility and peacefulness. But to me, it's almost like the pianist is discovering the notes the same way John Smith is discovering this new possible way of life that he never imagined. And when the orchestra joins, we get the strings and the flute and the horns, just as Pocahontas touches John Smith's hair. The touch makes it all more real and tangible. And then as the music soars slightly, the camera does slightly. Malik cuts from this image of Smith to some of the men of the tribe moving across their figures against the landscape. And then we return back to that piano theme, that solo piano, when Smith and when Terrence Malick as the director puts his focus back on Pocahontas and not the people around her. The narration then shifts. We actually get some voiceover and it's Smith talking about the Native Americans as a people and his response to them. The music then accordingly shifts. It ascends. The horns take over. There's a real nobility to the sound that matches exactly how he is describing them and his experience with them. Gentle, loving, faithful, lacking in all guile and trickery. That's how he characterizes them. What better description of this Mozart piece can you offer than that? And there's just perfect closure to the sequence, too. We're talking about how music is used in these scenes. It's not about the silence, but of course, that's part of it, too. When the music stops, then we're back exactly to where we started, just on their faces, looking at each other. And now the absence of the music heightens the immediacy of the moment, and we're really dialed in to their looks and the sounds of nature around them, witnessing them in their natural states, if you will, in obviously a natural space. Yeah, that's right to point out that uh, Malik isn't always bold in his use of Mozart or, or classical music in general. He he can be, you know, think about the Tree of Life's creation sequence and that the music is at the forefront. Um, but more often than not, it's in the way you're describing where it is a crucial part of the scene, but not elevated any more than what else is going on. The camera work, the acting, the editing. Um, I I guess he kind of, Malik manages the levels well so often mm-hmm. when he's using classical music. I think this is a good example of that. Okay, number three for me. One of the things that makes Barry Jenkins' Moonlight distinct is the way he uses classical music alongside hip-hop, alongside soul, and then all of it gets woven intricately into the score itself by Nicholas Bratel. Uh, Among the classical pieces that we hear in Moonlight is Mozart's choral composition, Laudate Dominum from Vespere Salones de Confessore. And this was conducted by Brattel for the film, actually. 
This moment comes early on. The main character here is still a young boy. He's called Little and played by Alex Hibbert. And in this scene, he's in the midst of a bunch of other boys. They're out on a field, kind of roughhousing. They've got, um, I don't even think it's a its a ball. It's like a bunch of duct tape that's been piled together to kind of form a ball. And they're just messing around. The sequence begins um, with a floating camera, a very Malik-like camera that hovers across all of the boys' faces as they look directly into it. So again, this emphasis on on dignity and humanity here that we're starting with, and the music is there supporting that. And then we get these um, delicate edits of their play while the music is hovering over them. What I like about this sequence, too, is that Jenkins interrupts it with diegetic sounds. So at one point, we get the horn of a train that we see passing in the background beyond the field. That that reminded me very much of Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, which also has many scenes of boys at play. Um, and I think what this does is, again, it kind of balances the music. So Mozart's music is so powerful and so sort of... Um, uh, heavenly that it can dominate a scene and a little touch like that with a train it, it makes sure we don't get lost in the heavenly realm and we kind of stay rooted on earth as well so it's such a mm. crucial touch uh, you could say that this sequence is maybe a throwaway moment um, but I think as we watch little we notice his un- increasing unease among the boys and how they seem to start kind of circling around him as a group and and they seem to be testing his I don't know his manliness they're feeling him out in a way they're not doing to other boys. And so it's this dawning awareness, both for them and for him, I think, of how he might be different from them. Now, I've talked about how the cinematography in Moonlight by James Laxton casts its characters under this particular glow of grace. And I think the music does that too, including this Mozart piece in this scene, just kind of holds little there in his confusion and in his wondering, it just kind of holds him in, in its arms. So uh, going with the choral work for this pick, if mm. if you have Netflix and you want to revisit it, it's right at about 13 minutes in, I think. You can check it out there, Moonlight. Yeah, with Barry Jenkins, there really are no throwaway moments, especially when you consider his collaboration with Nicholas Bertel. And I'm just thinking about these two films here in particular, obviously Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, but... Those two are a pair who I hope work together forever. Yeah. It's just such an exciting partnership. My number three is a movie that uses two Mozart pieces, and the film as a whole is one where classical music is basically a character. It's five easy pieces. The Bob Rafelson film from 1970. Really, I'd forgotten this until I was looking up some details. Josh Nicholson's breakout role in a lot of ways in terms of being the first starring vehicle for him. And you talk about films that are due for me for a Paris, Texas-like reappreciation. It's this film, Five Easy Pieces, because it's been well over 20 years since I watched it. So long, in fact, that while I did remember that Nicholson's character, Bobby Dupee, was a classically trained pianist, that wasn't lost on me. I could describe the overall plot as much as there is one with Five Easy Pieces to you, but... I could not have told you, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit, that the title, Five Easy Pieces, of course, refers to five classical piano pieces that we hear in the movie that he played growing up, including those two from Mozart. Both of them are piano concertos, fitting, of course, because piano is the instrument that 
Robert was trained on. Fantasy in D minor is the fifth and final one of those five easy pieces that we hear. And Nicholson's character is sitting alone in a room lit only by the fireplace. It's not really clear where the music is coming from, though it's entirely possible and probably likely that someone in the house is playing it. It's a really lovely little scene, but it is a little scene. It's only about 30 seconds long. Josh, for me, the one that I want to put more attention on is the third of the five pieces. It's number nine in E-flat major from Mozart, and it's when Bobby finally does return home to this place, to this life that he's completely rejected for the first time in years. And we see him from the outside approach as he comes up to the door. And then we cut to inside the house, looking out at him coming in. And of course, we're inside now, so we hear the piano faintly playing. This starts a take that lasts almost two minutes, where Bobby enters, he surveys the house before going into the room where the music is emanating. And it becomes a very dramatic moment naturally because, of course, the music gets louder the closer he and we, the camera, get to the door. And then Rafelson positions the camera directly behind Nicholson, so we don't really have any sense of what's happening on the other side, and we're not going to find out until we somehow get past Bobby as he walks in. And, of course, as that door swings open, slowly, dramatically. The music then, of course, swells too because it gets louder the closer we get to the music itself. He walks in, he sees his brother, Carl, and he sees this woman, Catherine, played by Susan Anspa, who is Carl's fiance. And this is a key moment in the film, even if Bobby's face doesn't register it. He's seeing Catherine, who he will have a brief affair with. Then when he leaves the room, he confronts his dying father, one of the key reasons why he stayed away so long. And that twinkling of Mozart coming from that other room, it's, it's still there. It's quieter, but it's still noticeable as he goes in and he sees his sister Partita, who is grooming the man in a wheelchair and basically non-responsive. And this is a reckoning for Bobby as he says he doesn't even know who the hell I am. So I'm kind of thinking about it, Josh, in terms of the tree of life scene. Very different, but again, this domestic clash, this father-son clash, this real anger and angst that exists between these two men. Certainly it's inside of Nicholson's Bobby the same way it is inside Brad Pitt's character as the father, but the music would never betray (laughs) any of that. And I learned from a video extra on PBS's website that this piece, which is the piano concerto number nine in E-flat major, is regarded as one of Mozart's best works. It's certainly one of his most praised piano works. And I just think it's appropriate in this film that such exalted material would be what he hears immediately walking in the door because his family's approach to life and their stuffiness and pretentiousness has always been something that he has tried to rebel against. And I also learned from PBS that Albert Einstein once called this piece Mozart's Eroica which is a reference to Beethoven's Third Symphony, and Bobby's middle name is Eroica, Mm. which means heroic. It translates to heroic, and I think there's a bit of irony considering the life Bobby has carved out for himself. He's escaped this, didn't reach any heights as a classically trained musician, and instead chose to take on menial jobs, blue-collar jobs, and... I think you can make the case it's a bit of a slap in the face for him, again, to walk into that immediately when he comes home. Maybe I'm pushing it here to Josh too, but 
I read somewhere that this piece definitely is intended for solo piano. And when he comes in the room, they're playing it on dual pianos. There's something there, again, about him being slapped in the face. This loner who has come home, left his girlfriend, Karen Black, who he's embarrassed about at the motel. And he comes into this environment where they're playing this lovely music and they're having this experience together. And then he exits and he walks into the room and it's his sister and his father together, another counterpoint to him and the life that he leads. It doesn't strike me as a particularly showy piece. It's actually another very soothing one. But as I said, it really doesn't match at all Bobby's restless spirit, which is why I think it's so effective in this scene. Five easy pieces you say is due for maybe a reappraisal by you. I have never seen it. So maybe we can add this as an option for bonus content sometime soon. And um, you can revisit it and I'll make up for that. Okay, here we go. Number two, finally, an Amadeus moment from Amadeus. For me, one of the brilliant elements of the movie, I think, is the way it interweaves Mozart's music beyond just the performance sequences that we get, where it's obvious that it's being performed. There are other ways, and we'll maybe spend more time on this in our discussion, Adam. There are other ways the movie uses his music. And my favorite is an early one. This is where Salieri, he's in old age here, and he's describing to the priest his memory of reading some sheet music that Mozart has left unattended in the court this one time. It's for the serenade Gran Partita. Salieri describes being just absolutely ravished by what he hears in his head when he reads the page. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. (laughs) And then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until... A clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. So this works, of course it works aesthetically, right? The elements coming onto the soundtrack as Salieri describes them. It's also just a brilliant bit of performance by F. Murray Abraham here. It really is. In conveying Salieri's rapture, just the pauses. And and I mean, this it's just something else. But there's another reason that I think this moment is key. Uh, as I said, I'm appreciative of classical music, not a student of it. So I love, especially early on in a movie like this, that it's a lesson in music criticism. You know, Salieri yeah, here, that's it. <laughs> he's teaching me about Mozart's music, probably in the yeah. first half hour of the film, right? How to mm-hmm. listen to it, what to appreciate, what to notice, how it's distinct from other types of music. And it, it made me wonder, you know, Amadeus, huge hit. And uh, maybe this moment helped a lot of people who were interested in the movie, interested in the music, but weren't experts in Mozart, you know, mm-hmm. um, didn't bring that sort of knowledge. And whereas a film like this could be could start putting up walls right away by being like, we know more than you do about this music and not, we're not even going to bother to teach you. Right. We're just going to tell the story and show off how much we know. No, right away here, the filmmakers decide we're going to invite you in. 
and we're going to have Salieri invite you in um, mm-hmm. in a way that gets you incredibly excited about the music that you're about to be immersed in. So I really think it was a key reason probably for the film's popular success, maybe even for its success at the Oscars, you know, where it it might have had to win over a few people who mm-hmm. who weren't quite as natural fans of the music. And once they came to love it, they just came to love the movie more. Yeah, it's such a great scene, such an important scene to the movie, if not the best Mozart music scene in Amadeus, because I'm going to suggest maybe one more. It's definitely in the top two, Josh, and we will indeed talk a little bit more about how it functions as music criticism. A good transition too, coming from my choice of five easy pieces to that one, because you mentioned the Grand Partita in five easy pieces, all of the characters, all of the siblings are named after orchestral movements. So Bobby is Bobby Eroica, and Carl is Carl Fidelio, and his sister is actually named Partita. It's Partita who's grooming the father in that scene. We're going to my number two, and back to The Marriage of Figaro, though a very different movement, very different type of piece from the overture that opens Trading Places, my number five choice. And coming off that five easy pieces, piano concerto, that's one, again, where it's very elegant and it's moving. The music does elevate the scene. The music is not the star of the scene like it is with my number two. And yes, it's the most obvious Mozart music choice. And sometimes that's precisely why it has to be on the list, Josh, and not excluded. It's Shea Soava Zeffaretto from Figaro as it's used in the Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne, left alone, unguarded in the warden's office, finding in a crate of records, The Marriage of Figaro. We cut from him eyeing the record to another form of high art, the Archie and Jughead comic the guard is looking (laughs) at in the bathroom. We go from that record sleeve to that piece of printed material, I think very consciously. And what I know of Figaro is only really from what I've read online and what we hear about its origins in Amadeus. I don't know how apocryphal any of that may be, but on Wikipedia, it says it tells how the servants Figaro and Susanna succeed in getting married, foiling the efforts of their philandering employer, Count Almaviva, to seduce Susanna and teaching him a lesson in fidelity. So I've watched the scene a million times and always thought it to be quite stirring. Josh never thought about the choice of the music itself. And there is again here some irony in the pick. Figaro's all about a man and a woman uniting. The subplot of cheating, which of course Andy Dufresne's wife did. Sabotaging his employer. <laughs> teaching the warden a lesson in fidelity. Teaching him a lesson in truth, in honor. This corrupt, philandering warden. And I mentioned in Amadeus, we hear the conversation between the emperor and... Mozart is he's trying to justify working on this piece. And he says, come on now, be honest. Which one of you wouldn't rather listen to his hairdresser than Hercules or Horatius or Orpheus? People so lofty, they sound as if they shit marble. And I can't do the laugh, Josh. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) The mixing of high and low brow that's described there, elevating the struggles of the common man. Here it's Andy elevating the common men struggling. And this piece in particular is a letter, it's a duettino, it's sung by the Countess and Susanna in Figaro, and I read a description of it that said it's a perfect example of the transcendental beauty of Mozart's music.
Mozart coming from the loudspeaker, everyone in the prison stopping to listen, motionless. How often do these men even get to hear female voices, first of all, right? Hmm. Much less two angelic voices like this. Transcendent beauty is surely why this piece was chosen to give these men a sense of being able to transcend their circumstances. And Andy, of course, could have selfishly allowed himself just a personal escape. He could have just closed the door right. to the office, right, and just listened to it himself. But we know that's not in his character at all. He doesn't hesitate, even though obviously he probably would have gotten off with a much lighter punishment, too, than he's going to get now, because this is a true act of rebellion. But that's what he does. He pulls the speakers over, he pulls the microphone over so everyone in the prison can experience it. And as we listen and as we watch the men listening, we then do get the almost equally sweet sounds of Morgan Freeman's voice. Andy? I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Those voices soar. That's what this Mozart piece does. It soars. And if you look at the translation of it, it's a little song on the breeze, on the breeze, what a gentle little zephyr. So again, even the, the lyrics themselves translate perfectly to how the music is being used here. And I love the devilish look on Tim Robbins' face as he considers doing what he's told, turning the music off and opening the door, but then he decides to turn it up. You see that flicker of fire and rebellion in Andy, which also brings us back to the movie Amadeus. Even if Mozart denies the intentions behind it, composing an opera based on Figaro is an open act of defiance against the emperor, against the establishment, which is exactly what Andy is doing here against the warden. And the tragedy of it, of course, is that after this brief reprieve for all the men from their misery, reality truly comes crashing down with the pane of glass being broken to open the door, the guards to rush in. For those few minutes, though, all those men flew above the prison walls, Josh. They soared. Red's comment is so great uh, about not caring what they're what they're singing about. I like little kill the author argument he's making there that I love. And that is, yeah, Shawshank, that's bold, right? That's the boldest mm-hmm. use of Mozart you're gonna get. Almost, almost bordering on shameless, but I agree. I think it works. I definitely yeah. well, considered this one. Bonus two for one here. It's also the piece that's used. In the opening, I think my favorite opening of the year this movie came out, 2017, 2018, The Death of Stalin. That great opening mm-hmm. with That's right. Stalin calling the radio station saying, I want a recording of that delivered right away. That yeah. whole 10, 15 minute sequence is a performance of this piece. Yep. My number one, I went bold. In this slot, I went with A Man Escaped, uh, Robert Brasson's World War II prison escape film. 
And it's one of the cases where even when I wrote about this film, I specifically cited the use of Mozart just stood out to me as so crucial. Uh, A Man Escaped uses Mozart's Mass in C minor a number of times, but the key moment for me is, yes, the boldest moment. It is the finale when the prisoner Fontaine, played by Francois Leterrier, he's finally escaped. We've watched him in excruciating detail right throughout this film. Everything that is involved in planning and trying, failing, and finally here actually escaping. And as he sneaks off into the foggy village streets, that's when Mozart's music just takes over the movie. It just grabs the movie and it becomes all about the music. Lot of Brisson, I think it's it's at once somehow transcendent, but also mundane. This kind of combination of um, you know just a man quietly sneaking off into the streets, but it's given this transcendent feeling with the music. The music is elevating it. The vocal strains from the mass make this so much more than just the practical escape of a prisoner. It becomes this flight of a soul. I mean, we're here's another example of uh, this idea of soaring and being elevated. Um, so that's what we get here in A Man Escaped using Mozart's Great Mass. Hmm. Yeah, this is another one I very, very strongly considered. My number one is from Amadeus. Again, maybe the only scene, for me anyway, that rivals the one that you chose for your number two, Josh. And it is Requiem in D minor, another finale, Confutatus Maledictus. And this might be the only sequence in the film where we really see how the music is made. There are lots of scenes where we see people enjoying the fruits of Mozart's labor. We watch him a lot taking swigs of wine or whatever as he writes down on the sheet the notes and the sounds he's hearing in his head, but we don't actually really see the process until this scene. And in watching and hearing it constructed, we, of course, get it deconstructed. It's Mozart dictating to Salieri the different parts of the orchestration, translating those sounds he hears in his head to the page. Start with the voices. Basses first. Second beat of the first... Time, me- time. Common time on A. Second measure, second beat. You see? Yes, yes, G-sharp. Of course. Yes. Second beat of the third measure on E. You have me. I think so. Show me. And where I get chills every time is when the strings come in, the real fire, as Mozart calls it. Strings in unison, ostinato on A, like this. Next measure is rising. Yes, 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 I think so. And then that rush of energy sets up the voca may, those high sopranos. C major. Sopranos and altos and thirds. Altos on C, sopranos above. It's just heart-wrenching, especially as we know, we know what Mozart's fate is. And when he stops... And he reviews Salieri's work. He then conducts the full piece in his head. Yes. Good. Show me the whole thing from the beginning. 
we get a great cut to the shot of a carriage rushing home in the night. That's Mozart's wife and son. And it's just perfectly on cue and in rhythm with those strings, with the ostinato. The piece then becomes the soundtrack to this ill-fated journey home. And there are just so many layers to it beyond my appreciation for the music. Salieri's wish is coming true, right? Mozart's dying. The Requiem piece he wants to eventually claim to have written, it's being written with his pen. It couldn't work out any better. Selfishly, the plan for Mozart's doom and his ascension is playing out. And yet, I watch it and I feel the genuine affection mm-hmm. between the two men here. Yes. And I feel the genuine pleasure on Salieri's part to be collaborating, as it were, in this way with him. When Mozart clearly needs to rest and Salieri keeps pushing back, that he's not tired, he can keep going. He's completely tone deaf, obviously, and not understanding what Mozart is asking for. And I suppose you have to read it as a case where he wants to keep pushing Mozart because the more he pushes him, the more likely he is to suffer. I think that's part of it. Yeah, and it ensures that he's going to get what he wants, that final finished requiem before it's too late. But can it also be that he doesn't want to stop because he wants to prolong this experience, because the closest he'll ever come to the divine is happening right now in these moments, being an instrument for Mozart's genius. It's all there. It's all playing out between these two men. And I think about the man in black, Salieri dresses up to scare Mozart, to commission the Requiem, the Mass for the Dead. And Mozart asks for who? And he says, a man who deserved a Requiem Mass and never got one. He's alluding to Mozart's father. He's preying on Mozart's guilt Mm -hmm. and his pain. But this ends up being, of course, Mozart himself. As we see, buried unceremoniously, buried ignominiously in an open grave at the end of the film, he composes a requiem for himself, a man who deserved one and never got one. And it's all just so diabolical and damning. Salieri, when laying out his plot, to the priest, says, how does one kill a man? It's one thing to dream about it, very different when you when you have to do it with your own hands. And isn't it, Josh, with his own hands, more or less, that he does kill him by playing this whole process out, by insisting that they finish composing the piece? And it's, it's the kind of act, I said diabolical and damning, because it's the act that would lead someone who's this wicked to being consigned to flames of woe, as the Requiem says, as we hear with Confutatus Maledictus, Flamus Acrobus Addictus. How would you translate that? Consigned to flames of woe. We're watching Salieri, at least in his own mind, be consigned to flames of woe, being damned eternally because of what he's doing in this scene. And yet it's so powerful and so beautiful. And I just want those two guys to somehow continue for the next day composing this music together. Well, and that's exactly why it's such a wonderful mirror or follow-up or reverse, you know, reverse image really of an earlier scene. I want to spend a little more time on when we get to our review. So I won't get too into it here, but that moment where Mozart impulsively improves the piece that Salieri has composed for him, right? It's the flip image of that. And I think that's that sequence is also crucial to this movie. And I love how this one calls back to it. Those are our top five Mozart movie moments. 
I'm guessing you have an honorable mention or two, Josh? Well, I certainly did consider Shawshank. And I also want to mention a few others that listeners threw out there that I gave some thought to as well. Um, On my Facebook page, Kevin Robert Ryan suggested from the King's Speech, another example of Marriage of Figaro being used. And then Dylan Dom suggested two. He said, Piano Concerto Number 23 in A Major from, as you said, Adam, the death of Stalin, which uses Mozart's music. And Dylan also suggested, I remember this one faintly, another 80s movie. I think this is 80s that I saw as a kid out of Africa, Robert Redford playing Mozart to unwitting baboons. Here's what Dylan, Hmm. Dylan quoted this line, which I'm assuming is, is correct from the movie. Think of it, never a man-made sound and then Mozart. So there's, there's two other ones that could have been on this list. Well, besides all four of yours, and I'll say four because I would never, of course, break the rules and put a Pantheon movie no, on never. the top five list. <laughs> That's not like me at all. I did think about Mozart's Piano Sonata number 18 in Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. This is one of those scenes where it's about a six-minute bravura camera tracking shot. It's a 360-degree shot while we see a man playing a piano the whole time, diegetically in the scene. I'm not going to begin to try to unpack the meaning of it all, Josh, but it is one that I definitely considered. Violin Concerto Number 3 in G Major comes from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, when Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe, the the ship physician and the captain, have a little moment to breathe and have some fun in the captain's cabin and play music together. And I'll throw out, it's very brief, but Requiem in D Minor, the Lacrimosa, appears in Inside Lewin Davis as well. Early in the film, we hear a little bit of that Mozart Requiem. And I bring it up because I did discover this in doing some research, so it's not something that had otherwise occurred to me. But you make perhaps the Mozart and Salieri comparison between Bob Dylan and Lewin Davis. And of course, who is it Mm. that Lewin Davis goes to perform in front of? thinking maybe this is going to be his chance finally at making some money, at being the professional and acclaimed folk singer he should be. Bud Grossman, played by F. Murray Abraham. Shot down, told, I don't see any money in this, right? Again, those are our top five Mozart movie moments. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you want to see the complete top five, including video clips, watch some of these examples that we're discussing, visit filmspotting.net slash lists. Coming up, we bring in some understudies for Massacre Theater. Actually, these folks are pros. Then it's our 8 from 84 series continuing with Amadeus. Stay with us. At the defense table, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. That's from the trailer for The Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed 
by Aaron Sorkin. It comes to Netflix next weekend. And on next week's show, we plan to have a review, Josh. It might be a little bit of a review roundup next week. A few movies of note opening this coming weekend. In addition to The Trial of the Chicago 7, David Byrne's American Utopia, which is directed by Spike Lee. That comes to Amazon Prime on the 16th. And then there's the new movie, and I love saying it, Sam, bleep me for radio if you want, Shithouse, <laughs> written, directed by, and starring, did I say that with enough glee, Josh? You're a wild man, Adam. Yeah. Written, directed by, and starring Cooper Rafe, who is 23 years old. I'm going to say now, I've seen it. I'm going to put it up for the Golden Brick nomination, Josh. It's going to be in the running. We'll see if you agree or not. As of this moment, have you seen any of those three films? I have not. Uh, and boy, if I had to prioritize them, I'd probably say I'm most excited about American Utopia. This kind of caught me by surprise earlier this year when it was even announced that Spike Lee and David Byrne were collaborating on something like this. So I'm extremely excited about that. But these all seem like good options. And in addition, Adam, for sure, we're going to return to our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon next week. That will be 1975 Seven Beauties, nominated for four Oscars, including one for director Lena Wertmuller. So, yeah, lots of good stuff. Might be a packed show next week. We'll see. Oh, Adam, I forgot. Also, Hubie Halloween. I mean, I, I will be catching up with I mean, Hubie Halloween. So I wasn't going to let you forget. Feel free to join me if you'd like, and mm. we can make it a little bit of a conversation next week. Sure. But either way, I'll be reporting on it. Okay. And truly, of those three we mentioned beyond Seven Beauties, I've seen The Sorkin and I've seen Shithouse. I have not yet seen American Utopia. So whether it's one long review or we get to a couple of them or talk about all three, we will have, as Josh said, a packed show. We were anticipating that maybe we'd talk a little bit about the trial of the Chicago 7 next week, and that would set up my conversation with Aaron Sorkin the following week, which was scheduled. And then, of course, because I mentioned it on last week's show mm -hmm. before it was etched in stone, it has now been postponed slash put off, Josh. So that Aaron Sorkin conversation no longer happening. I don't know why you do that to yourself, Adam. I don't either. Also, next week, we will have the results from our current film spotting poll. The question is, thinking about the trial of the Chicago 7, of course, what is your favorite courtroom movie? Your options, 12 Angry Men, A Few Good Men, Judgment at Nuremberg, My Cousin Vinny, Philadelphia, The Verdict, and other. And Josh, Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men is holding on to a comfortable lead. The most popular other picks... Not To Kill a Mockingbird, as we anticipated, actually, but Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution and Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder. I've seen one of those. I've seen Witness for the Prosecution, and I dig it, as I dig most Billy Wilder films. Anatomy of a Murder is a blind spot, and boy, did one of our listeners think its omission was worthy of us maybe being put on trial, Josh. Here's Robert Blenheim from Daytona Beach, Florida. You left off your best courtroom movie list, the very best courtroom movie of them all, Anatomy of a Murder, directed by Otto Preminger. It was based on a real case, filmed completely on location in the places where the story happened, and it was cinematically a real masterpiece, Preminger's finest film and one of Hollywood's best. This is an oversight that beggars belief. Even the writer of the novel thought the film was better than the book. And you know, 12 Angry Men is a great movie, but it's a jury movie, not a courtroom film. Please mention your oversight on your podcast. This is a nearly criminal omission. So what about you, Josh? Have you also missed 
anatomy of a murder and yes. you belong in handcuffs blind spot for me as well so guilty but i love the pedantry and i love the accuracy there bob of the point about 12 angry men being a jury movie and mm-hmm. not a courtroom film after all the links we went to to specify that to kill a mockingbird didn't qualify because that movie <laughs> wasn't really about the trial here we included a film that's winning the poll that of course, opens with the trial itself, I suppose, concluding over and the right. rest of the film, right, taking place in the jury room. So, you know, we could get into whether or not we could consult lawyers. Is the trial truly not complete until mm. that jury deliberates and renders its decision? Mm-hmm. We don't need to go there. But I think Bob does have a valid point, as that is a very different film from the other ones on the list. Nevertheless, sorry, Bob, it's winning right now. Well, and if you want to side with Bob, you could always vote for other in that poll. Vote now. Leave a comment at filmspotting.net. One way that you can support us over here at Film Spotting is to join the members of the Film Spotting family on Patreon. One of the recent benefits of being a family member is getting the opportunity to take part in our monthly trivia spotting events. We've done two of them. We've got Trivia Spotting 3, the Zoom Ultimatum coming up on Friday, October 16th. Tickets already sold out just like the previous two exclusively to our patreon family members we've got keith fifths from the next picture show going to join us david wayne's going to join us all sorts of luminaries and people connected to our show are going to be part of trivia spotting the zoom ultimatum and we've got a new patreon goal josh we did a virtual watch a watch party with our family members of out of sight when we hit our goal of 900 when we get to a thousand We're going to do another one, and we're going to take listener suggestions and focus in on the right choice. Their listeners do get to decide. And we're getting close. We're only 50 away from 1,000 family members over on Patreon. So join us. We'll make a push here, get it to happen, and we'll do another virtual screening and commentary together soon. We also should note, Adam, that we're now making available on Patreon annual memberships rather than monthly. If you do decide to go with that option, you'll get a 10% discount. So again, that's patreon.com slash filmspotting to join the film spotting family. Now, Josh, not only do you have a lot of movies to see just in the coming weeks here on Film Spotting, but you got all sorts of irons in the fire, you got all sorts of side hustles, a virtual seminar <laughs> coming up at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston. Not traveling to Boston, mind you. No. But you are going to be conducting, I suppose, a seminar. That makes it sound really stuffy. Is there another word? Is it a is it a party? Can we call it a party? Yeah, sure. It's a virtual party, Adam. <laughs> That's how the Coolidge Corner Theater has been building these. Uh, that theater is located in Boston, and they've been doing this since April, I believe, was their first one. These virtual seminars. A couple friends of the show have led some, Matt Singer and Alyssa Wilkinson. And the only reason I'm not panicking about this coming up, I have to turn in my video lecture soon, and then we'll do a live event after that. And that date is coming quickly, but I'm not panicking because I know the topic pretty well. My seminar is going to be on the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm calling it the Royal Tenenbaums family tree. So I'm going to look in particular at some of those supporting fringe members of the Tenenbaum family, like Eli Cash or Rally and Dudley, even Pagoda. I'll spend some time talking about Pagoda. So I'm really looking forward to it. The way it works is if you sign up, then you'll get a video lecture I'm putting together in advance. You can watch that on your own, watch the 
movie, The Royal Tenenbaums, of course, as well. And then we'll all come together for a live Q&A via Zoom. That is going to be November 12th. So that'll be the really exciting part. Get to interact with people who have just recently watched the movie and um, they can ask questions about the lecture. They can ask questions about anything related to Royal Tenenbaums or Wes Anderson. Should be a lot of fun. We'll put a link in the show notes for folks who are interested in signing up for that. But again, the live Q&A will be November 12th. I have one word to say. Wildcat. <laughs> Pretty good. That's it. Pretty good. You might want no, to work. No, no, I didn't. I didn't do my. You would know if I was doing my Owen Wilson impression. Would I, Josh? I'm not. I? I'm just not going to break that out. <laughs> okay. For one word. Special okay. occasions only. I get it. That's right. Okay. This week, over on our sister podcast, the Next Picture Show, you can hear them discuss Dick Johnson is dead, a pairing with Orson Welles. F for fake. That great show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, the aforementioned Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of that show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more at nextpictureshow.net. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. You know, I think you're right. I think there is going to be trouble around here. I knew it. Oh, do you, do you ever hate that stuff? Gives your circulation something to fight. Oh, I see. What kind of trouble? Lisa Fremont. You kidding? She's a beautiful young girl, and you're a reasonably healthy young man. She expects me to marry her. That's normal. I don't want to. It's abnormal. I just, I'm not ready for marriage. Every man's ready for marriage when the right girl comes along. And Lisa Fremont is the right girl for any man with half a brain who can get one eye open. Oh, she's all right. Did you do have a fight? No. Father loading up the shotgun? What? Please, stop it. It's happened before, you know. Some of the world's happiest marriages have uh, started under the gun, as you might say. No, she's just not the girl for me. Yeah, she's only perfect. She's too perfect. So you've got Thelma Ritter and James Stewart there in 1954's Rear Window, written by John Michael Hayes and Cornell Woolrich, directed, of course, by Alfred Hitchcock. Along with that massacre, we shared our top five landscapes as characters. Esteemed art photographer Gregory Crudson joined us for that, and he was the inspiration for the top five. So why that scene from Weir Window? Well, Lisa and Chris of Ayer, Massachusetts, right? Believe it or not, I was actually able to puzzle this one out based on both of your performances, along with some help from special guest Gregory Crudson. I thought Josh's zippy dialogue as Thelma Ritter sounded just like one of those fast-talking dames from the 40s or 50s, so that helped me figure out the time period and situation. And while Adam's performance choice was definitely bizarre, it did resemble a possibly drunk or at least very downtrodden Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) And then the great Gregory Crudson chimed in right after Massacre Theater to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which also stars Jimmy Stewart. So I knew that you two must be massacring Rear Window. This film choice also relates to Adam's pick of Paris, Texas, and specifically to Vim Vender's ethereal wings of desire. Just like Rear Window, we float between apartment views into each occupant's private lives, not unlike Edward Hopper's paintings or Hitchcock's introspective Rear Window. And I'm so pleased, Lisa and Chris add, that you invited Gregory as a guest on your show, certainly an unconventional guest, but his work inspires a cinematic gaze. I discovered his transcendent photography a couple decades ago from his show at the Mass Mocha, and I've been a fan ever since, and it was great to hear about his current and upcoming projects. Well, glad 
that you enjoyed it. Yeah, some really good detective work there, Lisa and Chris. Here's Everett from Idaho Falls. Usually I struggle with placing the movie U2 Massacre each week, but this time it was easy. My thought process started at Harold and Maude. With the quirky female character Josh impersonated, reminding me of Ruth Gordon. But then I nailed Adam's James Stewart impression, a pretty good one if I'm being honest. At first I thought his scene partner was Catherine Hepburn, since I remember a subplot in the Philadelphia story where Jimmy Stewart is reluctant to marry his girlfriend and co-worker. But then it clicked. This was a scene from my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film, Rear Window. I was always confused at the central relationship highlighted by this scene. Why was Stuart so reluctant to marry someone as radiant and charming as Grace Kelly? And why was she waiting around for this schlubby invalid? In any case, this film had me riveted from beginning to heart racing end. This is one of the most suspenseful films I've ever seen, which is only fitting coming from the master himself. A good perspective here, a different perspective on it from Jorge Gonzalez Gropera. He says, Rear Window, or Adam doing Roger Rabbit doing Marge Simpson doing a Jimmy Stewart impersonation. Yeah, that's... That's probably accurate. Thank you, Jorge. (laughs) Growing up in a golden age of Hollywood-obsessed Cuban family, Hitchcock's films were often a topic of discussion at weekend get-togethers and dinner parties. It's not surprising, really, considering that at one point Havana had more movie theaters than New York City and Paris. So the Cuban populace was well familiarized with American movies and its stars, and my parents and siblings were no different. My mom and my older brother in particular had thoroughly internalized various aspects of the plots and dialogues of Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds, North by Northwest, etc., And this had undoubtedly rubbed off on me through proximity. So when I sat in front of the TV and randomly caught rope on a sleepy Sunday afternoon at the tender age of 14, I was primed for the unexpected and unadulterated pleasure I got from the 1948 classic. I was engrossed by the story of murder as a game to be casually had by the two upper-class characters and by the seemingly uninterrupted shot that spans the entire film. Rear Window is similar to Rope in that it transpires in one location and revolves around murder, but it's the better of the two because of a more satisfying screenplay and superior character development. Rope was a sort of dress rehearsal for Rear Window, but it was just the right kind of film for a budding, rebellious 14-year-old awakening to the darker sides of human nature and how cinema can reflect that darkness back at us. Good stuff there, Jorge. Two more comments here. One from David Driscoll. He's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I actually kind of enjoyed Adam's post-stroke Owen Wilson impression. There you go. So there you go. Owen Wilson, Adam. These are my two signature impressions. It would make sense (laughs) being as bad at them as I am that Owen Wilson and Jimmy Stewart would cross over into each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're also really good at Mr. Monopoly. I think we've established over the years. (laughs) (laughs) So he's somewhere in the mix with those two. Last comment from Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Even the fake name given to Grace Kelly's character, Amy Kane, is referring to her role in High Noon, a film not short on the oft-referenced Western landscape. That's true. So Westerns came up a little bit in our discussion of landscapes as characters, and that was a Sam Van Halgren decision to sub in the name Amy Kane for Grace Kelly's character. So we didn't completely give Rear Window away. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. This week's winner is Brett Fisher. He's from Portland in the great state of where, Adam? Oregon. Oregon. Congratulations, Brett. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. You know I said it just because I thought you might get it wrong. Yeah, thanks for the help. (laughs) Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Tate tee-toe-toe. No, no, Miss Lamont. Round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line. 
We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And Josh, with all the musical virtuosity on display and our top five Mozart movie moments and in Amadeus, of course, we decided to recruit some professionals for this week's Massacre Theater, some for real opera singers. Now, I, of course, was all on board with this when our producer Sam suggested it. We always like to kick things up a notch here on Film Spotting, but the segment is called Massacre Theater. Josh, is this going to be too good? Is this setting an unrealistic standard for the future? I mean, speak for yourself. I I feel like I'm always delivering a quality performance. Yeah, I apologize. I, I, okay. I don't know where you're going with this. Fair enough. Our guest actors this week, Andy Wilkowski. He's an acclaimed baritone from St. Paul, Minnesota, and a longtime film spotting listener. He's performed with the Minnesota Opera, Milwaukee and Chicago Opera Theaters, Madison Opera, among many others. His Mozart bona fides, Josh, include performances in The Marriage of Figaro, Cozy Fontuti, and as Papageno in The Magic Flute. I love this too. He's conceived a project called, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's called Guns in Rosen Cavalier, a mashup of art song recital and rock concert. You can learn more about that at his site, which we will link to in the notes for this show. Love it. So, Andy, in this scene, this is a bit like, Josh, putting you in a scene where there's mm-hmm. funny voices, but mm-hmm. not giving you any of the funny voices. He's a fantastic singer, and he's just doing the talking. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. We will hear singing, though, from Jamie Van Eyck, who's a mezzo-soprano based in Waco, Texas. That's where she is a professor of voice at Baylor University. Jamie's performed leading roles with opera companies Boston, St. Louis, Austin, and Utah. She's also been abroad in Moscow and South Africa. She's soloed with the L.A. Philharmonic and the Boston Symphony Orchestra and sung in world premieres at Carnegie Hall. Her bio now notes that she is, quote, thrilled to be making her film spotting debut in the role of Maria Callas impersonator. Thanks for that plug there, Jamie. She and Andy also had the bad luck. Here's how they got roped into this. They're friends of Sam's. Of course. Well, we are extremely excited and humbled to have them here on Film Spotting. I guess I will from afar say action. Oh, this is my favorite aria. It's Maria Callas. It's Andrea Chenier. Umberto Giordano. This is Maddalena. She's saying how during the French Revolution, the mob set fire to her house. And her mother died, saving her. Look, the place that cradled me is burning. I mean, I don't know if I can go on. I'm moved to tears, Josh. 
Yeah, I might I might have to retroactively fit that onto my list. Can I can that yeah. make up for the tree of life, Adam? I'll put that at number five. <laughs> Maybe. If you know what film Jamie and Andy just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 21st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. More information about Andy and Jamie, including where to see them perform when opera stages finally open back up. You can go to jamievaneyck.com and andrewwakowska.com. And we'll also have a link to their info in the notes for this show. Are we going to appall you with something confidential and disgusting? Let's hope so, because that is what you really like. Unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. You hear it all over. What a story. What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang. Amadeus. Mozart. Mozart. Mozart? Time for our 8 from 84 review of Amadeus, Adam. Amadeus, the winner of eight Oscars, including the big ones, Best Picture and Best Director for Milos Forman. Forman was already a winner for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was also a Best Picture winner. The stars here, Tom Hulse as Mozart and F. Murray Abraham as Salieri. They were both nominated in the Best Actor category, running against each other there, but uh, Abraham, he's the one who took it. The film was a box office success. It was made for less than $20 million and went on to make over $50 million domestically and over $90 million globally. I think I might have mentioned this when we were previewing this 8 from 84 series earlier in the year, Adam, but if my memory serves me right, Amadeus was one of those first grown-up films that my parents took me to. Maybe it had been after all those Oscar wins, you know, and it got that theatrical push, and we went to see it at that point. And the reason why I think this is the case, Adam, is that early scene, I think it's, yeah, it's the first one where we meet Mozart. He's (laughs) chasing Stanzi into that Uh room outside of sort of the salon where all the desserts are and they're frolicking under the piano. I remember feeling a little squirmy watching that with my parents next to me. Lots of cleavage to be with your mom and dad. Yeah, there was a lot of cleavage involved. You didn't quite know where, what direction that was going to go. So yeah, I had to have been around like 10 or 11, something like that when I first saw this movie and thought, oh, this is what grown-up movies are like. I don't remember how much I liked it at the time. Saw it probably at least once since and did grow to appreciate it in a more adult fashion. How about you, Adam? Was this something that you encountered a little later in life or was this uh, another HBO staple for you in the 80s? Hmm. You know, it's funny because I was just looking as you were talking. I brought up the best picture winners from the 80s. And if you start all the way back at 1980 with Ordinary People, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, Terms of Endearment, Amadeus, Out of Africa, Platoon, The Last Emperor, Rain Man, and Driving Miss Daisy. There are some movies in there, Josh, I still haven't seen, a couple of them. And of those, the only one I saw in the theater when it came out was Platoon. Okay. Which kind of makes sense because me and my best friend, Matt, we were we were kind of into war movies, you know, or we liked thinking we were playing war out, mm. you know, in the jungles of Grinnell, Iowa. So we did see Platoon. I remember that having a big impact on me. But man, there was a run where 
out of Africa the next year. Still haven't seen that one. So no, I wasn't as sophisticated as you, Josh. I'm sure they came to my one screen theater back in Grinnell, but I don't remember seeing Amadeus when it came out. I don't think I saw it until that last year of high school and that summer before I went off to college when I was really just getting into film. And so I was going to my public library all the time and checking out all the movies that I was reading about in Ebert's book or in the Leonard Maltin guide, the, the movies that everything was telling me, oh, you have to see this. And it resonated with me then as it does now. This won't surprise anyone who's a longtime listener of the show, being about art and artists, wanting to have a vocabulary to talk about art and have the ability to express my appreciation, but also this aspiration for artistic greatness and the feeling of utter inadequacy that can develop out of a rivalry. I actually was thinking about it, and Sam reminded me of this over the weekend when we were talking over Slack, that three of my favorite pieces of popular entertainment— are Amadeus, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Hamilton. And what connects all three of those? Judas, Jesus, Burr, Hamilton, Salieri, Mozart. Intense jealousy of the other's gifts. In the shadow of the other, one a star whose fame and legacy far eclipse theirs. Disapproval of their lifestyle and choices. And one of them, responsible in all three cases, at least if you allow for some poetic license, for the other's death. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ Superstar is really Judas's emotional journey. Amadeus is Salieri's. And Hamilton, arguably, is Burr's. So this approach of telling an historical figure story through the eyes and journey of their rival is one clearly I find very, very compelling. And I'll just give you a quick personal angle that I think will help transition into Amadeus specifically. As you know, I started playing the bass guitar when I was around 11 years old. And then and now, just to set the table, solid bass player. I've played in big bands. I've played in jazz combos. I've played in a rock band that I still play with and was in another one in college that wrote all our own stuff. And if there's a back to the future scenario where I'm at a bar or something and there's a band on stage and I don't know, the bass player breaks his hand accidentally Mm -hmm. (laughs) outside in the alleyway, they could call me up on stage and I could I could finish the set. I'm your guy to do that. But I'm not a great bass player. And you know how I learned that? Because a kid in my town, and I'll say RIP to Wes, who was three years younger, I think, than me, developed into a truly phenomenal bass player. We were both townies who then ended up at the same college, too. So he was there. And I looked at the things he did on a bass. And like Salieri, I thought, I can't do that. I'll never be able to do that. There is imagination and creativity in his playing that I simply will never have. And I do believe there was an innate gift there that he had that I wasn't born with. But he also committed himself to his playing in a way that I never did. And this is where, even though Salieri is clearly the villain of this story, I so deeply sympathize with him because it's difficult enough discovering your limitations And your failings, realizing you'll never be as good as maybe you thought you were or hoped you'd be. But if you've truly sacrificed and then had to confront your mediocrity, that's something altogether different. And that's what I had forgotten about Amadeus until this rewatch, how significantly God and the idea of sacrifice factored in to the story, right? And Salieri's motives. He says at one point, all I wanted to do was to sing to God. He gave me that longing and then made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If he didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire like a lust in my body 
and then deny me the talent. So God imbues Salieri with the ear and the love of music. He reciprocates. I'll devote my life to music for you. I'll forsake family, love, sex. I won't allow myself any secular pleasures in this pursuit. And quick digression, something I never paid attention to before either. Salieri's love of sweets, how that keeps recurring in the movie. Mm -hmm. He meets Mozart because he sneaks into the room to get some chocolate. <laughs> and that's where the dessert is, right? And then he tempts Stanzi with sweets when she comes over, and he tries to seduce her a little bit over to his side and get what he wants. When Cynthia Nixon, the housekeeper, is getting set up with her whole ploy, he offers her some sweets. It's just part of the seduction to the dark side. It's the one indulgence he allows himself. And the movie's book ended with it, too. He's being served sweets at the yeah, very beginning. That's what I was going to say, at, the very first scene. Yeah, and at the end, one of the last lines is, it's, it's sugar roll day here at the asylum. But that's his only indulgence. And what does God do? He not only denies him the talent, he gives the talent to someone who sacrificed nothing. He calls him, I think, a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy. And on top of that, he curses Salieri with the ability, maybe the sole ability, to hear Mozart's genius. It's like he's saying, God, you don't hear me clearly, but I hear you in Mozart. What torture, what torture that would be. And that's why I think Salieri is truly the tragic hero, because he's us, right? He's all of us. Only a select few actually get touched by God throughout history. Mozart's one of those. There aren't that many Mozarts, but there's lots of Salieri's. Yeah, Salieri puts in the work. You know, he he he's committed, as you say. And so that is part of the tragedy here. And I think it is relatable because most of us have something that we are passionate about and pursue intensely. I mean, I can, for example, I could say, I really am proud of a certain review I wrote. You know, I, I prepared for it. I, I think I had some good things to offer. I'm happy with the craft that came out of it. Uh, and then when I'm done, I will say, go and read something Ebert wrote. And it's just like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, even All worse. And even worse, Adam, back when, you know, I was reviewing the same time Ebert was reviewing, I knew that we both saw the same movie at the same screening and we both had the same print deadline. <laughs> So yeah. I knew how quickly he cranked that masterpiece out and that just mm -hmm. made it, made it hurt even more. But at the same time, I could recognize the greatness of that work that he put out. And so there was an admiration that came with it. And you just kind of throw up your, you throw up your hands at that point and say, yeah, that's, that's how it should be done. And so whatever your pursuit is, I think this is one of the reasons this movie lasts and connects with so many people, whatever your pursuit might be, whether it's professional or a hobby. Yeah, if you're not going to be able to reach that pinnacle, but you know what that pinnacle looks like and you recognize it in someone else's work, it's going to be a bittersweet experience. And I think that's why that's why watching Amadeus as a whole is a bittersweet experience. Now, the, the rivalry conceit that you're talking about, here's another thing that's great about that choice, is it wonderfully tweaks the biopic paradigm. Right. Because yeah. mm -hmm. we're not getting this. We're not getting the birth to death from Mozart's perspective or even, you know, someone who was close to him in a more fawning way or appreciative way. We're getting this rivalry dynamic. So this is everything, almost everything 
through Salieri's lens, through this distinctly, again, bittersweet lens that is tinged with jealousy, but also appreciation. Hate is in there and also love. Mm -hmm. The scene that you talked about, your pick from this movie, where there's clearly a love, at least a shared love of music between the two men in that moment. And that so complicates the biopic formula as a biopic skeptic. It's maybe the one thing Well, there's two things I really appreciate about Amadeus. It's that, and then also, this is related, it's the way it is looking to deflate any pretensions. And it goes back to the desserts you're talking about, Adam, that very opening scene where those servants bring the desserts to Salieri's room, and before they go in, they each start to, like, steal a bite, right? And it leaves the whipped cream on their faces, and immediately we know, okay, this isn't going to be a reverential drama about a musical genius. This is going to, you know, kind of be a messy farce. And it is throughout. I think it it shifts a little bit towards the end and becomes a bit more serious. But certainly that first half could be considered almost a farce. And I think that's to its credit. It's a way of deflating mm-hmm. as gorgeous as this movie is, the production and elements. And we can talk about that. If it never feels stuffy or feels like it's putting those things out front to try to win awards, it's because it has this level of, of messiness and farce going on as well that kind of deflates that. So you got around, Adam, to the, you know, the spiritual aspect of this movie. Mm -hmm. And that's a question I really wanted to ask you is because you've described it there in two ways as this artistic struggle for Salieri and also this spiritual struggle for Salieri. And obviously the movie encompasses both. I'm just curious, did it register for you more strongly as one over the other? When, when you take it as a whole, and it's landed at the end, do you consider this a story of spiritual struggle more or a story of artistic struggle more? It's a great question. And I think if I'm being totally honest, I definitely see it more as an artistic struggle. But I recognize that for Salieri, at least how it's framed in this movie, that the real rivalry isn't with Mozart. It becomes a rivalry with God. He at one point even Mm. describes it as, I figured out my plan. It's watching Don Giovanni. He says, I figured out my plan to triumph, not over Mozart, to triumph over God, right? So there is an appropriate, I think, to Salieri ambition here to pull off something that is unimaginable, unthinkable. If he can't create the type of music Mozart creates, if he can't achieve that, well, the opposite of that is he can destroy and that's what happens a lot of times with people who can't create. He's going to destroy magnificently. And if in the process, he achieves something grand by essentially destroying God as he sees it, like breaking God's will, then that's pretty remarkable, right? So I, I guess I would I would conflate them and say for Salieri, I think they're inescapable or indistinguishable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of, of the movie in that pick you made where they are composing together and Mozart is on his deathbed. It's all intertwined right there, right? The artistic yes. struggle, the artistic appreciation, but also this spiritual struggle of, am I going to go through with this? Am, am I going mm-hmm. to actually push him? to the brink of death. And that's why that is such a great scene. It it struck me just to, you know, to dig into theology a little bit here, watching it again this time, it struck me as this uh, kind of beautiful, but also maddening for Salieri demonstration of something that's called common grace. So this idea that uh, there are many ways of looking at it, but one aspect of common grace can be that God will speak through 
people who on the outside either don't seem to deserve it or don't Mm -hmm. seem ordained in some way. So in other words, you don't have to be a believer even in God to be blessed by him with artistic talent. And in your creative acts, you might even be able to speak God's truth, what you're doing. And that's, you know, that's exactly kind of what we're seeing in this movie in Mozart's music. He's creating this holy music. We don't really get all that much of an indication of whether or not he believes in it. You know, if anything, we think his taste, we suspect his taste might run towards the more crude um, when he's arguing for some of the quote unquote lower forms of art or subject matters. He says he's a vulgar man. He's a vulgar man. Right. And so, and that's, so that is Salieri's main issue here is, as you said at the beginning, is why was this man chosen when he is not as ordained or as deserving? Right. And That's he, right. And here's I've where been grace. Pure. Yes. I've worked hard enough. I've done what's right to earn the ability to have this gift and to achieve the fame. I think we have to also pay close attention to how, how much fame and honor and recognition is a part of Salieri too. As much as he's an appreciator of arts, he wants that fame and notoriety. And maybe that's why he wasn't chosen. I mean, it, in some ways, maybe Mozart's love for the music is more pure. And that is why he's been gifted. I mean, we can never know, but it's just this idea of common grace that is really gnawing at Salieri throughout this movie. I think that's definitely true. But an interesting question is to speculate about whether or not Salieri would trade any trappings of fame or riches or even legacy if he could do what Mozart does. And I ask that because... It's in a conversation they're having right after the marriage of Figaro, I think, closes and just before Don Giovanni. And yes, he rigs it. So Figaro only has like nine performances. Mm -hmm. But his work at this point isn't resonating with audiences. And he even says that Salier says something to him like, well, if the public doesn't like your work, then what are you going to do? And again, not a totally fair thing for him to say since he shut it down. Who knows if it would end up finding an audience or not. But I think Salieri truly sees the genius and wants it so badly that if he could create the music that Mozart creates, even if no one heard it, Mm -hmm. even if it didn't bring him any fame whatsoever, I almost think Salieri would trade it. I think he would do it. I just think to it, have that that skill. He loves the music that much. Yes. I think it would be a hard choice for him. And and that's yes. one of the great things about how the character is conceived and and how he's performed. I did want to get to that that one scene I mentioned in our top five, because it's related to this idea of Mozart as as a pure being in a way. And it's the one where Salieri has composed this piece to welcome Mozart into court. And Mozart immediately sits down at the piano and quote unquote improves it in the moment. The rest is just the same, isn't it? It doesn't really work, does it? Did you try? Shouldn't it be a bit more? Or this? This? Yes. Better? What do you think? 
what I love about it is, you know, a lot of things. It it, it gets to the layers of Salieri's or of Abraham's performance as Salieri, where he has to kind of like push these this snarl down below and still act like he's enjoying this. But we know how frustrated he is. But it's also the complicated levels of Hulse's performance, which mm-hmm. he gets to have the most fun, right? He's he's For the sure. element of farce throughout this movie. But in this moment. When he makes those changes, he looks up at Salieri, not with this expression of one-upsmanship, like, look, I beat you. He's looking at him with pure joy. He's fully expecting Salieri to appreciate the new sound that has been created. So for for Mozart, everything else has fallen away. Any sense of rivalry, any sense of one-upsmanship. And he has no idea that he's crushed Salieri's soul by doing this, right? He doesn't know any other way. He no. doesn't know any other way than to process music that way and to improve it if given the chance. Yeah. And I, I just I think that's a good example of how uh, layered Hulse's performance is in this. I agree. I agree. I think he's really wonderful. And even that laugh, which I think probably by design starts to grate on all of us the same way it grates on Salieri, is in its own way, I think, really musical. It seems so appropriate, right? Mm. It's got its own rhythm to it. And it sometimes is louder and sometimes it's it's a little softer. And he employs it as he needs to in the moment or as I suppose instinctually he has to. But I love Salieri's description. I think that it's an obscene giggle, right? Mm -hmm. Which reflects how he feels about him. But even if it is an obscene giggle, as I said, it feels appropriately musical to me. And in that scene I mentioned where they're talking about Figaro in the aftermath of it, and this gets at what you said about the layers of performance, not just in Hulse, but of course in F. Murray Abraham. And maybe it it just kind of goes without saying, but I know Sam threw out in our newsletter and on Twitter which movies that have won Best Picture really deserved Best Picture. And he's biased because he loves Amadeus certainly as much as I do and thinks it absolutely was the best picture of that year. And how often does that happen? How often does it really happen that the movie that should have won won Best Picture? Mm -hmm. Well, you can say the same thing for me about F. Murray Abraham. And that moment in that Figaro discussion where if you think about it, he is telling some kind of lie mixed with truth in every single thing he says or expresses in this scene, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's walking a line where he's trying to make Mozart think that they are friends and he's trying to encourage him, but he really has this ulterior motive. There's, There's some level in every line or movement on his face, every expression of the scale between truth and and lie going up and down moment to moment. And there's one question he gets that he cannot lie about. Mozart says, but what did you think of it? Mm-hmm. And the way F. Murray Abraham delivers, I thought it was marvelous. Mm-hmm. You know, you know it's the truth. He he can't, he cannot lie about that. It is so purely honest in that moment. And I also give some credit to the makeup here. I think the older Salieri versus the younger, I think, is really good. And maybe that's an obvious thing to say, but there are lots of movies where sometimes you look at a character aged and think, okay, I'm I'm distracted by that. I was never distracted by it. And I love just the kind of subtle alterations to his gestures and the physicality that are appropriate for his age, but also certainly hint at <laughs> A little bit of madness as he's as he's gone on and had yeah. to deal with he's a his actions. Monstrous. And yeah, he is. It, it, there is something about him that seems perfectly monstrous. That is absolutely the right way to put it. So I love that performance. And I'll just say as well, you mentioned it, the the production design and really as it relates to the performance scenes 
themselves. Act one ends with Don Giovanni. And if I wrote it down in my notes right, Salieri describes it as terrifying and wonderful. And what a great description. I mean, another moment where the critic, right, just really accurately sums up Mm. and eloquently sums up what he is watching, what he is experiencing. That whole sequence is so foreboding and such a scary spectacle. And all of the opera scenes, all of the big productions, they are so intricately designed. And that includes not just the production designed by Joseph Svoboda, but Twyla Tharp doing the choreography that isn't just Josh for me about the spectacle, meaning, oh, we're going for the Oscar here. This is this big biopic. It's got to be perfectly lustrous like you would imagine. It's more about accurately reflecting the emotional and physical investment of the artist, of the composer, what they put into it as far as work and what they're doing as far as work to bring this all together in the moment. You certainly see it in that Don Giovanni sequence, the the madness starting to take hold and the exhaustion that Mozart is experiencing. But we have to sense that in every beat, in every single note. And it's a minor thing too, but even the crowds, the crowds all seem somehow so perfectly authentically responding to what they're seeing as opposed to just being, you know, seat fillers, which Mm -hmm. is what they could be. And then I mentioned this sequence, Don Giovanni in particular, that end of act one, where I call it that because if you have the theatrical version DVD, you have to flip it over and watch side B with the wall tumbling and that winged creature coming out and the curtain going down. I mean, it just, it's, it's magical. And yes, terrifying and it just portends all of the grandeur but especially the misery that's going to follow in act two I think it's completely fair for this movie that is immersed in the beauty of Mozart's music. I mean, it's just swimming in his music, obviously, to match that in its production elements, whether it's the production Mm -hmm. design, as you're talking about, or the cinematography here, Miroslav Andracek, the candlelit scenes um, and these deep shadows in these alleys and the hallways of these homes that are, you know, depending on candles for illumination. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. But again, in a way that doesn't seem grabby for Oscar gold. It just seems, you know, in an attempt to not only evoke the period, but as I said, match the beauty of the music. And so it works. And then if you have those more elements of farce that are undercutting it, as I talked about on the top, I think that helps balance things out a little bit. Just really briefly to go back to Abraham, for me, it's also the size. It's almost like the size that he lets slip out. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes those are accompanied or preceded by a little pause, that moment you were talking about where he answers marvelous, you know, it's, it's like you see on his face, how he feels. And then yes, Abraham pauses for the suspense of, is he going to vocalize it? And then uh-huh. when he does, it's, it, it's accompanied by this little sigh that in one explanation of breath, he's kind of capturing everything the movie is about, the bitterness and the appreciation, the jealousy and the love. Uh, somehow Abraham manages to to capture all of that in a, in a tiny little sigh. Yeah. And I just want to close with this because you brought it up during 
the top five. And it's definitely something I wrote down in my notes, too, something that had never really occurred to me before, which is seeing Salieri. You mentioned the bitterness in some ways, the worst example. If you were saying to someone who's thinking they want to get into arts criticism, you would in so many ways, for so many reasons, not want to show them Salieri, right, of what could go wrong. But wouldn't you also want to point that person to Salieri in terms of the personal investment, Mm. the eloquence and the ability to articulate that experience that they had, recognizing the formal elements of the work, processing their own problems with it, but also recognizing the truth in what they're feeling and having to recognize the the truth in the work itself, the genius in the work itself. I'm just thinking about, you know, a top five list someday of the best portrayals of critics on screen, whether mm-hmm. it's music or movie or whatever. And this film in some of these sequences, including that one that you singled out in your top five in particular, to me is maybe the best example of what art appreciation and criticism could be. Yeah, I think you could point to his attention to detail, the formal elements, mm-hmm. as you say, and and that is, you know, that's something to emulate. But he also stands in for that, you know, stereotype that I don't entirely believe in, but the critic criticizes because they can't do. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, Salieri obviously composed his own pieces, but he yeah, also, he you know, in not reaching that level yes. and letting that eat away at him. That's the problem. Right. Is if he recognizes that he can't reach that level. And so then he turns to an appreciation and sharing his appreciation of the work that does reach that level. That's a good critic. The critic who lets it eat away at them and the bitterness seeps into their criticism. That's a bad critic. This is what he should have done. He simply should have recognized, yes, Mozart is better, but. Salieri, you could be the best art critic of all time. Just be the best person who not only recognizes and worships the work, but can actually express that to the world so other people can appreciate it. If he had just embraced being a critic, yeah, Josh, I know. Well, then we would we wouldn't have we wouldn't have a movie. Peter Schaefer wouldn't have the Broadway play either. No, if only he'd listened to you, Adam. <laughs> Amadeus is available to rent on most platforms. It is pretty tough to get, as we mentioned, that theatrical cut online. So if you hear this and want to see it, you're probably, unless you own the DVD, going to have to check out that 2002 director's cut. I think it adds about 20 minutes. If you have seen the movie and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We are also on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on film. For more about our 8 from 84 series, including previous and future reviews, visit filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84. Next up, a very different film, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. That one's going to be fun. Well, Adam, that is the end of our show. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. That's all in the show archives. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is your favorite courtroom movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, The War with Grandpa. A kid loses his bedroom to his grandpa and goes to war. Okay, pretty straightforward. Robert De Niro is the grandpa. Christopher Walken and Uma Thurman also star The Wolf of Snow Hollow is the new one from writer-director Jim Cummings, a Golden Brick nominee for Thunder Road oh, here yeah. on Film Spotting. Yeah, terror grips a small mountain town as bodies are discovered after each full moon. Robert Forster, Josh, in his final film role. This has been completely off my radar, and now 
I'm really excited to see The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Yeah, might have to check that out. On digital, 40-year-old version. This is the winner of the directing award at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Rada Blank, the writer, director, and star. She plays a down-on-her-luck playwright who reinvents herself as a rapper. And here it is. Hubie Halloween from Adam Sandler (laughs) on Netflix this weekend. Josh, are you going to do what I did last year? My penance for losing film spotting madness. I had to watch whatever that Adam Sandler murder mystery was on Netflix. Was it called murder mystery? I I think you (laughs) just named it. Yes. Good job. (laughs) So yeah, I lost. But then this year Mm -hmm. you lost film spotting madness. You returned to your rightful throne losing that tournament and you have to watch Hubie Halloween. So are you going to wait like I did until the very last minute before the next madness begins? Or are you going to partake in the Halloween fun? Yeah, technically I do have a couple of months to get to Hubie Halloween, but I, you know, I can't imagine anything being worse than watching Hubie Halloween right now, (laughs) except maybe watching Hubie Halloween in February. So I think I will get to it soon. All right. Next week on the show, There's a lot of movies we might talk about, including David Byrne's American Utopia, and we definitely plan to discuss the fifth entry in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, Seven Beauties from Lena Wertmuller. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.